We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, good morning. Today is Tuesday, June 6th, and this may be the most exciting podcast that we've had since I started my own podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, my name is Scott Shera. I am Grace's dad, and Grace's premature death has got me into a war like nothing I've ever seen before. And part of the reason I believe God allowed Grace to be taken from this earth early is to wake me up specifically. And part of the responsibility of waking up is to share with others. So that's why this program is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad, because that's the single most important thing that I've learned about myself, which is how programmed I have been. So I always start with something related to Grace. Uh, this podcast was originally going to be aired on May 16th. So the pictures are around May 16th, and you'll see that in a minute. And Grace is the reason I'm in the fight. And the three ladies I, I will have on today all have similar stories as to why they're in the fight. Two of them lost their husbands and one lost her special needs daughter that was quite similar to Grace. So Don, can you first bring up my favorite picture of Grace? So this is Grace uh, holding a bouquet of dandelions. So why is this my favorite picture? I mean, she started deprogramming we way back this is, I think this picture is five years ago. So she picked this bouquet of flowers. And at that point, I was a lawn Nazi. I was buying the stuff to kill these things in our lawn. Grace brings this beautiful bouquet for mom. And I realized, oh my gosh, these things are, are special. Uh, so now we have a lawn. Grace, Grace, you'll see this in a minute. She helped me mow lawn, but let's bring up our front lawn picture, Don. All right, so now, because of grace, we let these things go, and it's it's a beautiful picture, as you can see. Then the next one is Grace helping me mow lawn. So once uh, I realized that Grace wanted to be my helper, I asked her, would you like Dad to help Dad mow lawn? She said, you bet. So we couldn't get a lawnmower fast enough because we mow seven acres. So Grace became my, my big helper. And what was funny about her mowing lawn was that <laughs> I always tease. So I, I would make these big outlines for her, like these acre patches. She would mow them. And then the last patch, she knew how to start the mower, put it in gear, everything reverse, but she never wanted to put it in reverse. So I, I tease her that she would spend five gallons of fuel on the, the entire lawn and then five gallons of fuel on the last patch because she'd make these big circles to get the last patch because the steering radius of the mower wouldn't get it. So now starting last summer and I continue it this summer, you'll see the last picture. So you'll, I'll explain this one. So this is now the leftover patch. So this is the patch Grace always spent the five gallons of fuel on and I have left it over and we just leave this grow all summer long. We started it last summer in honor of Grace um, because, uh, you know, just it's, you know, you, you do these things when you lose somebody, at least I do, because you, you want to keep the positive memory of them. So anyway, with that all being said, my guests today are also joining in this fight against evil, and I'm going to bring them on one at a time. Uh, so I have Sheila, Rebecca, and Patty, 
and we'll bring them one in one at a time. They're each going to explain who they are and their story. And then Don will uh, also play a, a clip to introduce their story. So before we do that, I'm going to jump in with the title. The title of our uh, podcast today is, Have You Been Called for a Time Such as This? And for those of you who are not familiar with the scripture verse that is related. It's Esther 414. So Don, do you have that scripture you can bring up on the screen for everybody to see? So the scripture says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your fa father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. So I want to explain this so that everybody understands what's going on. So it's paraphrased as, have you been called for a time such as this? But what happened with Esther, Esther was a Jew, and her unique circumstances to become the queen, it just was, it's like a one in a million, but all of a sudden she's the queen. Her cousin Mordecai raised her. And so now Mordecai learned that the evil prime minister Haman had convinced the king to put in place an edict to kill all the Jews. So Mordecai said to Esther, you need to approach the king and stop this. And Esther said, I can't, you know, nobody can approach the king. The king can only approach the person and otherwise you'll be killed. And so that's when Mordecai had the famous quote here, which, how do you know you haven't been called for a time such as this? Uh, so the story then continues that Esther took that challenge and it ended up being uh, such a blessing for the Jewish people. The king could not erase the edict once he made it. So he made another one, giving the Jews an opportunity to defend themselves. And in the process, Haman was hung on the gallows that he intended for Mordecai. And you know, the, the piece of this scripture that I want to explain is that it says, but you and your father's family will perish. So there's a consequence for not following God's will. So Mordecai could see it was God's will for Esther to talk to the king and realize God's going to come through regardless if Esther does what she's been called to do. And then the consequence for Esther and her family is death. Uh, thankfully, Esther did what she was called to do. And that's where I see all today is they are being called, did not lay um, asleep with that call. They decided to jump in. So we'll start with Sheila. Don, can you play uh, her video and then we'll go to Sheila? Did you know that a government incentivized hospital protocol has led to the deaths of untold numbers of unsuspecting people? The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons noted, we now see government-dictated medical care at its worst in our history since the federal government mandated these ineffective and dangerous treatments and then created financial incentives for hospitals and doctors to use only those approved and paid for approaches. The book, The Protocol That Kills, exposes the lethal regimen adopted by hospitals to maximize profits at the expense of patients' lives. This exhaustive expose provides a first-hand account of the protocol in action as it was invoked on an otherwise strong and healthy 52-year-old Rob Skiba, who was diagnosed with a viral infection by the admitting hospital. 
Within 40 days, this valiant Army veteran who had sworn to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, had fallen at the hands of a government-incentivized domestic enemy. This over 400-page true crime story uncovers every aspect of this lethal protocol in action, despite the protests of Rob Skiba and his wife. It includes disheartening text messages from Rob, who was locked away from his wife because she was forbidden to enter the hospital in the name of the protocol. Lawfully recorded detailed conversations his wife had with doctors, therapists, nurses, and hospital staff. Numerous pages extracted from the over 5,000 page hospital record that exposed the protocol that led to his tragic death. The testimony of a medical expert who provided his detailed analysis of the case. Invaluable and timely insights of a legal counsel who provides the story behind the story by providing crucial details and evidence along with over 100 citations from clinical studies, medical journals, federal regulations, and relevant books and articles that prove Rob did not die of natural causes, but due to the perpetrator's insistence that he follow the mandated and inhumane protocol that kills. As Richard Bartlett, MD says, this book shares a wealth of critical insights that will greatly aid in preventing future needless losses of life. The purpose of this book is to sound an alarm of a clear and present danger, as this lethal protocol is still being used against patients in hospitals all across America, and to provide you with essential insights that could help save your life or the life of someone you love. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Get a copy today at theprotocolthatkills.com. Wow, that's uh, that's really a powerful intro. So, Sheila, tell us about yourself. Tell us about Rob, and give us the the reason you're in the fight. Um, okay, thank you, thank you for having me. I you're my hero. Just so you know, I've watched all your interviews. Just your passion to get the truth out because of your loss. Uh, I love Grace so much now. Just learning all the little stories that you share, and and I rest knowing that I believe Rob and Grace are together and. Uh, it gives me peace knowing that. So anyway, thank you so much. I love you. I love your family. And um, even though these are terrible circumstances, thank you for, for letting us be part of this. Um, Rob was a 52-year-old, very healthy uh, young man. He, um, he was a public speaker, researcher, filmmaker. He had uh, not been whistleblowing, but shouting at, on top of the mountain. He was a watchman on the wall. He uh, uh, scripture was his favorite thing since he was a child. He had his Bible highlighted and annotated at the age of 13. I mean, he was always in the scripture. And so uh, we married uh, 777. He was really big in numbers as well. We met at a mission organization and um, and we worked there very happily for a while. But um, he had such a gift to bring powerful visions to life. He, he's a filmmaker. So I would read his scripts and think you could reach so many more million if you just, if this screen will just, if this uh, dream will just become a reality. So we eventually wow. stepped out uh, on faith and started to pursue that, um, you know, uh, media reaches people on another level where they suspend their disbelief and maybe, you know, believe what you are trying to sh show us. And he would always say, 
Um, we have to be just as good at telling the truth as they are at telling lies. So he was this close from reaching his goal, which was a, a 72 episode television series called Seed, which we will still plan on doing. But um, back to Rob, uh, he, he knew all the dangers and he was telling people about the dangers. Um, but he started coughing. He went to a conference. I always traveled with him, but this particular conference, he wanted to he wanted me to stay home. Uh, for my health reasons. He said they might quarantine us and you know he was going to go by himself. So I said, okay. So he went and then he came back and everything was fine. But then he started coughing very uh, strong. He, could, he couldn't get a sip of water down. He couldn't get a pill down. He couldn't eat. This went on for eight days. And so we had all the medications. We had the hydroxychloroquine, uh, ivermectin, budesonide. We had everything. And so uh, I called the telemed who are frontline front uh front line aligned and i told them uh what do i do so they kind of helped me do some back-to-back -back nebulization but then when i tested rob's oxygen saturation it had dipped down into the 50s and this is after eight days eight days of coughing where he could hold nothing down so because i had been to this hospital a million times before my dad got a pacemaker there i felt it was okay it was safe so uh we we drive to the er um they immediately strip us apart escort me out with a security guard and take him to the back. And I'm, I'm just thinking they're going to just, you know, get him set up and then I'll be in there. Cause I, I had always been the advocate of anybody. I never left any of my family in there alone. Right. Well, anyway, they ended up telling, uh, telling me that I couldn't come in for 21 days and uh, which led to the nightmare that we, uh, that I, that I lived through. And so um some of the things, some of the torture done to him was uh, malnutrition, over oxygenation, needless intubation and ventilation, which I believe is assault and battery, um, uh, excessive medication, and multi which caused multi organ failure. And so uh, he lived 40 days, and that's a biblical number. So um, I have to believe nothing passes through the father's hands, and um, this is not something that surprises him. So I really, I, so on day two, a doctor called from Rob's phone. So I, we had been talking and texting and, um, and I saw that Rob was calling me. So I, my mom and sister were there. It's like, it's Rob, it's Rob. So we get on the phone and it's not Rob, it's a doctor. And this doctor is irate mad and he's yelling at me and he's telling me that my husband needs to be put on a ventilator. And if he doesn't, he's going to die. And I said, no, my husband doesn't. Uh, he got oxygen yesterday and it went from a 70 to a 96. He doesn't need a ventilator. And so he yelled at me and he kept on yelling in front of Rob saying, do you want to die? And just terrible. I mean, terrible. I've never seen a doctor act like this. So from that moment on, I decided to record every conversation with a nurse, doctor, social worker, administrator, chaplain. I don't care who it was. I was going to document it because I, I believe Rob was going to live through this. And I'd have all this evidence that he could then write a book and expose it all. Cause that's what he did. He's published eight or we published eight books. We always did things together. And, um, unfortunately, uh, he didn't live to write the book. I, and I felt obligated after his death to, uh, transcribe all of those, uh, phone calls. And then, uh, uh, by the grace of you, I had a couple, Roberta and Alan Stalvey, who uh, really helped me with even get the book to the, to the next level because we have laws, we have uh, charts, we have we have evidence. I mean, this is not a soft story. There's a little bit of a journal of each of uh, those 40 days, but really this is the biggest uh, book 
or the biggest expose ever written on a government incentivized protocol that kills. Yeah, and we're going to cover that when we go to the next question. I do have a question for you about um, when you saw this happening, because this question comes up with me quite often. And, and my answer, I'm thinking your answer is the same, but did you, did you ever have a sense that you should remove him? Well, you know, because Rob was such in the know about this system, I'm surprised he even got in the car personally. And really, I, I, I wish the telemed frontline doctors would have just given me supplemental oxygen because that's the only thing that we were lacking. Right. So right. he never told me, come and get him, even though the last words that he spoke to me was, if, if you can't come in here and be my advocate, I'm going to die in here. Those are the last words that I heard him speak. So I'm haunted every morning with those words, but I can't live in the shoulda, woulda, coulda because it'll just torture me. And um, yeah, I, I, I think if I might have tried to bust the door down, they probably would have arrested me. I don't think they would have le ever let me take him out because that's this, this was their protocol and they were going to make sure that it that it happened. So... Yeah, I, uh, I believe me, I understand completely. And, and uh, I also... Go ahead. I also believe he went down punching. I will share a little bit more of the story is that um, they they gave him remdesivir on day one while he was asleep because they knew from the start we didn't want it. But he had he was able to hold his own and tell them no and finally get the remdesivir canceled off of his chart. And they, they put a band on his wrist that said DNI, do not intubate. So he was on the fifth floor and I told him, you're safe there. They can't intubate you there. Stay there. Just get some oxygen. You'll be home. Well, they, it didn't take them long. They were harassing him every hour, telling him that, you know, this and that. And, you know, finally he just told them, leave me alone. I need to sleep. And so he, he slept, but then the next day they tricked him into going back downstairs. And all these are detailed in the books. Every text message that was between us is in the book. I left nothing out. Now I didn't use pseudonyms because this is not just Rob's story. This is story of, I think, 1.2 million Americans. That's right. And so uh, I use pseudonyms so that it could be a universal story and reach more people because they may not understand what happened in their family. But when you read this book and you hear those words, it's going to be their story, too. Oh, outstanding. An interesting coincidence that Sheila and I discovered, actually, Sheila discovered it and shared it with me, is that Rob and Grace had their last day on this earth the same day, October 13th of 2021. Yeah, they died on the same day. Uh, we'll, so we'll come back to you, Sheila. I'm going to bring all three of you on after each of you do your personal introduction. So we'll go next to Rebecca, Don, so you can play Rebecca's clip. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray You'll never know, dear, how much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping I dreamed I held you
Please don't take my sunshine away You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy When skies are grey You'll never know, dear How much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping I dreamed I held you in my arms When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken So I Please bring Rebecca in. Uh, you know, when I first, when you first sent that to me, Rebecca, I couldn't, I couldn't take it, and I couldn't do it again. That was, that's tough. Um, you know, she was a special, she was a special girl, just like Grace. So, can you tell, tell the listeners about what you're doing about yourself and what happened to, what happened to Danielle? Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, when all of this happened, I reached out to you and I thank you for reaching back out to me and emailing me because I felt like I was lost. I was lost with no one doing anything and no one speaking up. And I, I really want to thank you and your family for fighting in the front lines for us. And we are right there behind you. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Danielle. Danielle, I, I was a very healthy woman when I was pregnant in my first pregnancy, planned pregnancy, and this is the first time I've encountered the doctors 
atrocities was that they delayed my delivery and forced me to have, you know, break the water and forced me to have a dry labor the next day. And Daniel lost oxygen during that. And they noted everything and they still denied, um, you know, it was a whole group insurance. So that's where Daniel first got injured. And I only found out two and a half years later when I went to uh, Sunday school and one of the teachers said to my boss wife that um, this child has something's wrong with her. And I went back to the doctor and said, uh, for two and a half years, I'm asking you, why is my child not doing this and not doing that? And he told me to leave his office. Um, he don't want to be my daughter's um, doctor anymore. And he was a doc doctor from birth who belonged to the group that injured my daughter. Wow. Um, since then, yeah. At three years old, I started Daniel in special needs um, classes. I fought all the way till she was five. Then she went into, you know, the regular special needs and it forced her on Ritalin. Yeah. And I kept asking, why? Why? I never seen kids take drugs. You know, I'm coming from Trinidad, you know, and living here 37 years. I'm thinking I'm in America, the best place in the world. Shut up and listen to the doctors. But inside of me said something was wrong. So I kept going and then they would say, okay, we need to put on another one to work with this one. So then she was on Adderall, Ritalin, then another one. And I, I just, I, I couldn't take it. The psychiatrist got mad at me and told me, stop questioning him. So as being a health freak as we were, I was listening to um, Gary Knowles and coming from work, Gary Knowles said Ritalin is the number two stolen prescription. And if injected into the arm, you will get a highest cocaine. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm shaking coming home. I couldn't take that pill. I know I couldn't give it to my daughter. I know I couldn't send her back to school. So I pulled her out to special ed and um, started breaking the pills small by piece by pieces and giving it to her. And three months later, I took her to a doctor and the doctor said I was crazy for doing that, but thank God nothing worse happened to her. So I homeschooled her. And CPS came knocking at my door. They sent people to family because now they're losing all the money. They're losing all the bonus money. And um, yeah. this, I have always advocated for my daughter. I fought the educational system, the medical system. And um, the one mistake I made was August of 2021, you know, when I took my daughter to Northwell Health Hospital. Um, it's a neighborhood hospital, it's eight minutes away. My neighbor down the street is a doctor, he's affiliated there. One of the girls who worked with Daniel for 10 years, her mom is a respiratory therapist, her husband is an emergency room doctor, but I did not know the nightmare that was waiting for me. I'll quickly say, because most of us went through the same thing. As soon as she went in, they said that, oh, she has COVID, she has COVID pneumonia, uh, they're gonna admit her. The emergency room doctor asked me, do you pray? I'm like. Right away, they're scaring me. Now, I'm not thinking about COVID. I'm thinking about pneumonia. I'm scared now. I never heard of pneumonia. And now double pneumonia. Oh, my God. Now, I, I, I am gullible to everything they say. I start believing every single thing. All my senses went out the door. All my knowledge of fighting for 28 years went completely out the door. Now, I'm at their mercy. Okay, they're going to admit her. Okay, I have to stay with her. And my neighbor who knows Danielle, who comes to all her birthday parties and our Christmas parties, said he's going to call her in. So I know that he is on board with Danielle, so nothing wrong, nothing bad could happen to us. So I'm thinking I'm safe. Uh, four days later, fast forward, I, I asked, I said, could I see a specialist? You know, she, we in here for like four days and she's not sleeping well. If you know Danielle, she sleeps very well. She's a song sleeper, but they started her on Remdesivir day one. Dr. Ramanu, the um, 
pulmonologist came in and he said, well, he told me, sit down, you know, he has his way. Um, we're going to take her into the emergency room for observation. Not, not to tell me, well, this is going wrong, that is going wrong. And I'm thinking, okay, she'll have observation, we're in better care. I did not know the protocol. I had ivermectin, I had hydroxychloroquine, I give her antibiotics at home, but just that oxygen pulse ox, I wish I never took at 87, yeah. uh, that, that scared me, that freaked me out, and that made me do the wrong thing. Um, so shockingly, I'll just go through some things that he said. When I told him, thank you, he would tell me, don't thank him as yet. Like, really like questions. Then he would tell me things like, I have nightmares about your child. I don't know what to say about that. Wow. Uh, yeah. Five days later, I said, um, she's finally sleeping. I said, could I please go home and shower? I'm eight minutes away. You know, I'll come back. And the nurse said, oh, yeah, you could come back, you know. So I left home, left the hospital, went to, to home to shower. I was very sick at that point. I was coughing, fever, chills, everything in her room. And um, I got a call an hour later that I can't come back unless I have a negative COVID test. So it was a setup. Yeah. I could see clearly now it was a setup. Um, at that point, sick as I am, I tried to send her balloons, her iPad, they refuse everything now. Before she, my husband was bringing all her clothes, my clothes, food, now they refuse everything. No iPad, no communication, no nothing. And then I heard she was tied up to the bed now because she's not listening. Um, that's what they say. So um, I hired Ralph Laringo uh, while I was on the 10 days, you know, um, to get COVID free, R Ralph Loringo was able to get the, the uh, judge to say immediately order ivermectin, immediately to, to administer. Um, so this was at the 10 day mark of when Danielle was in the hospital? Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, it was the 10 days that I was away. So this is probably day 12 that Danielle's in the hospital. Okay. And now, um, because the, day eight, they told me that every day they keep saying she have to vent and I'm out of the hospital now. And my ex-husband came there and he was saying, don't let them do it. And the doctor is saying she needed, and I'm not seeing her. They're not allowing me to see my child. And I asked him, I said, if this was your child, would you, would you put on a vent? And he said, yes. Yeah. And that was what the same thing he says, you know, it's like, you know, they need the lungs to rest. Yeah. You hear it 101 times. Right. So after she was on the vent, that's when I hired Ralph Loringo because I wasn't getting anywhere. Now, they did not give her the ivermectin on Friday. They say it's in the legal department. On Saturday, the nurse said to me, it doesn't work. Then I heard the talk in the hospital was that, oh, they want to give this child horse medicine. Monday, I was able to come back. It was by 10 days cleared. And um, Tuesday, the doctor sat telling. When I saw my child, I couldn't believe it. She was prone. She was swollen. And I'm like, why is she swollen? She had a bruise on her head, a bruise on her chin. Um, and they said to me, the, the ivermectin is causing her liver enzyme to go up. Now I am scared. I'm scared because they're gonna kick me out of the hospital. But I'm thinking my dad was on a ventilator and my dad recovered when he was deathly ill. My daughter would recover. She's only 28 years old and she's, she's healthy. She's on gluten-free, you know, 20 vitamins a day. I mean, no sugars. I mean, she's so healthy. And, I'm thinking, okay, you know, so they want me now to stop the ivermectin on day two. And, and it was like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? I have no one to talk to, you know, no one. We have to stop it. We need to stop it. So I, I then agreed to stop it. And, 
And we went on and on, and I begged him every day, you know, and he would come in and say things like, you know, this is dangerous. She's, 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 really, she's really very, very, very sick. No, Daniel was on a ventilator for 32 days, and every day she had Presidex, excepting when they did the trach surgery. Now that you talk about Presidex now, I know how dangerous it was. She was on fentanyl, Presidex. I mean, every drug you could think about, that they're just a cocktail of killing drugs. I mean, so um, I will just fast forward a little bit to the comments that he made to me. One doctor said to me, oh, the kidneys are working for now. I'm like, I dropped to my knees in the room and I was praying to God because we affiliated with so many churches all around the world and churches were praying in Africa, India, South America for my child, but it wasn't looking good. She wasn't getting better. And Dr. Raman, who came in the room when the oxygen dropped and they call him the, the maestro, the ventilator, and he's doing his arms like this while he's doing the pump in the air, doing the ventilator. And then he came out and he told me the next few days is not going to be good. And I didn't know what he mean because never once they're telling me she's going to die. Never once they're telling me that my daughter's not going to make it. And, and they called us back in early in the morning about, I couldn't sleep. Three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and my body just sat shaking. And two hours later, they said to come in, it doesn't look good. And again, she, she lasted 40 days in the hospital. And it was significant again at 40 days. I keep on thinking, Lord, 40 days. What do you mean by 40 days? What is what relative, you know, what it has to do with 40 days? And all the doctors and nurses was out there and um, they never again tell me she's going to die. And then a doctor came in and I saw the CPR stuff and I said, you know, are you going to do CPR? She's going to live, right? Because my husband and I walk in and we say, we're not going to hear anything they're going to tell us. Daniel's going to live and she's not going to die. We are pouring all the sounds. We are confessing that Daniel's going to live. We're not entertaining anything. And, and the doctor said to me, well, that's only used in the movies. And I'm like, what? Oh, my God. Just, just let her pass. What, what do you mean let her pass? Just let her pass. So everything they knew... They knew exactly what they were doing, step by step. They knew when they were going to take her out. They, they, they fought. You know, one doctor even told me, oh, if she ever comes out, that is she going to need a, a lot of therapy? I said, say, well, it's better if she's dead. Everything was that it's better if she was dead. So I said, no. I said, you're going to do CPR. I want you to do CPR. And they came in. And while they were doing CPR, and I was there in the room, and all the doctors and nurses were there, I saw blood coming through her trach. And I said, what is that? And I, and I said, that's her blood. And I said, stop, don't do it anymore. Stop, because they kept pumping the uh, injection into her heart. And oh my God, I lost Danielle. Everything I did all my life for 28 years. Danielle, if you've seen those pictures with the elderly people, for 10 years, Danielle volunteered at the assisted living. She was a happy happy girl who came to all the seniors serving them breakfast. She went to the chiropractor every week. She went to the acupuncturist every week. She went to all her social clubs every week. Daniel even worked with Dr. Feely at Long Island University, printing out flyers and preparing packages. Daniel had an active life. She was given back to her community and they took her out, all in the name of money, all in the name of money.
So, Rebecca, you did a great job summarizing what happened for for the audience, and you know you are in this block of people who are actively representing 1.2 million Americans who have been murdered in hospitals. And I am, I'm really thankful that you are in the fight. Uh, we'll come back, like I said, after after Patty does her introduction, then I'll bring all three of you back in. So thank you. Don, thank, thank you. Don, can you play Patty's clip and then we'll bring Patty in. Over the last few years, the world has gotten crazier and crazier. There's so much darkness and corruption in all areas of our society, but specifically in the healthcare system. The people in charge want to make it seem like they're some sort of heroes leading us to a better future, when in reality they are getting rich and people are dying. But they're trying to control the narrative. So they are working around the clock to convince you that they are the good guys. But enough is enough. The tables are turning. The tide is changing and we will no longer listen to their lies. Our society is broken. Our government is broken and our healthcare system is broken. We can no longer trust our hospitals. My husband, Tony, was killed because of hospital protocols that put the dollar before the person. In 2021, I decided to make a film to tell our story and unmask the truth behind the deadly hospital protocols. But the thing is, is my husband isn't the only victim. People have reached out to me with story after story about how the healthcare system has failed them. So I wanna continue to uncover the truth. It might seem like a hopeless fight, but I believe now more than ever, it's time to stand. I don't know where this road will take me. I don't know if they will listen. I don't know if this will lead to change but I have to try. Wow, that gives me goosebumps. That just is a super powerful clip. Uh, Don, can you ring Patty on, please? Patty, that was fantastic. Uh, you know, you're the instigator behind this podcast today. So Patty contacted me, I think in April, and said, can, can we get on the podcast or can I get on the podcast to talk about She's got now a second film, and we're gonna we'll talk about that after afterwards. But uh, tell tell the audience who you are, Patty, and the story of Tony. Yes, yeah, so my name is Patty Myers, and um, my husband Tony. I always like to, anytime I'm interviewed, I like to tell about his life because a lot of times we talk about their death. But he was a funny guy. I was married to him for 31 plus years. Uh, uh, since I was 19 years old, um, and we have two children, uh, uh, daughter Chelsea and a son Charlie, who's 21 and has autism. And we've traveled a long road with my son, and we're big advocate advocate people that we volunteered our time and helped families. Uh, we have two nonprofits, a private middle and high school for special needs, and also another program that we have housing for guys and a day program, social skills and summer camp. So our life was 24 seven special needs. Um, That's uh, that is a, uh, a gift that you were given. Uh, you know, you were 
technically in this fight for you know way before uh you know mm -hmm. I, we had a special needs daughter but that didn't put us in the fight i mean we knew we had to protect mm -hmm. her but i mean you've been in the fight for a long time uh, so these nonprofits that you have can you drill that down and talk about how you and you and tony work through those yes so um the short version is I started the first one building pathways because I saw a lot of kids either in school or have graduated and they weren't doing a whole lot. And I knew that we could do better and we could help them uh, work towards independence. So that's why I created that. And then I saw there were summer camps not in, and then we just kind of kept developing. I always had housing always in my brain of, of helping them uh, with that. Uh, and then at that time, I was a principal of a special needs school that I'd kind of started and uh, kind of left there to do things the way I think it should be done ethically. We'll just say that. So um, good for you. That's <laughs> I mean, so you've been taking a stand for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we have walked aside each other seven days a week. We've worked together. I didn't see my husband at six o'clock. I mean, we were constantly, he was driving the bus. He was, in fact, that clip that you showed at the beginning of your daughter with the lawnmower just, just a couple months before Tony died, he was teaching one of our guys on that same exact lawnmower. And he was real proud of it. And the and the the boy had a hard time focusing and he really did a great job. And Tony was so excited. And he taught them all kinds of things around the house. And, and so now I'm by myself doing it all, but I'm trying my best. But I wanted to say what we do more for the fact that we are we have always been advocates. Um, I think our son put it at a whole other level to fight for rights of all kids, not just our son. Um, but my husband was advocating for himself in the hospital when he got sick. So it's the similar story. The oxygen dips down. Uh, all I, all the knowledge I had at that moment, I didn't know remdesivir. I didn't know ivermectin. I just knew probably don't go to the hospital. That's pretty much it. Um, and so I said, well, can't we just get oxygen at the house? Nope, that's not possible. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. Yeah. You can get oxygen, uh, sent to your home. So, uh, I took them to the death chamber, I call it. And they wouldn't let me in for five days. Um, and then at the fifth day, he told me, uh, like we were just texting and, and FaceTiming, but then he said, I have to go to this other room. I need more oxygen. And I was like, what? I mean, I was, I was concerned he was in the hospital, but I felt like he'll just get a few things and he'll be fine. Right. But once he said that, and I called every day to get a report, no one returned my phone call. So five days, didn't see him, only heard from him and he was confused. And uh, no one returned my call. So finally, the fifth day, I was done when he said, I'm going to another room or oxygen. I said, I need the head, everybody. And they gave me this head nurse. And she said, well, when have you seen him? I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't let me in. 
And she said, no, there's a lottery. What? I've been here every day asking you, can I, and my husband's asking you say no. And now you're telling me there's a lottery? Crazy. Anyway, so there was this lottery thing where you called in from 9 to 11, and then they called you after that, and maybe you'll get a lottery. You know, maybe you'll be chosen, basically. So that day, she said, I'll take you up to see him. Now, he didn't know I was coming, and, you know, you have to put on the full regalia. And, I mean, I'll never forget his face. was so happy, you know. So from that day on, I was blessed. Not a lot of people get it, but from that, I don't know, it was what I said, how I said it. I wasn't rude, but I was curt and I was let in every day because it's a lottery. So I don't know. I mean, I called it 701 kind of thing. I don't know if that helped, but every day I was able to get in, even if it was 30 minutes, you know, and I shouldn't even say I'm grateful because we should be let, let in there, but right. So Tony's story real quick is really the ivermectin part of his story. So he was in there five days. Uh, that was the first time I got to see him. And that day I learned the word ivermectin. So I could tell he was going bad fast. Um, he had told me he got remdesivir the first day. And let me backtrack just a little bit. The first day I took him to the ER, I just sat in the car because I thought maybe they'll ask me to come in after they get him settled. And he said, my oxygen levels are fine. In the ER, they checked him two times and they were 94%. Good. good. He didn't look good. He didn't feel good. But, and he texted me saying, my levels are fine. They haven't given me anything, not oxygen, not anything. And they said they have to figure out a reason to keep me. Well, it was remdesivir. Yeah. And so we got a double dose within 12 hours of him being admitted. And his records show, after he died, I got all his records, and his records show he had kidney failure day two. They never said anything about kidney failure the whole time. Oh, my gosh. So anyways, so day five I get in. I learn about ivermectin day five. So five more days every day I ask for ivermectin. I get the whole horse pace, making fun, ask for antibodies, all the, everything was no, no, no. And then the fifth day, so it would have been the 10th day he was in the hospital and this would have been 17 days of having been diagnosed. Uh, finally, a doctor said yes. And I mean, I thought we got it, we got it. And so he got it that night. Um, and within, so that night he got it, he wasn't able to eat, hardly talk, could not sit up, any movement, like tiny. He would just, his oxygen would plummet. They were pressuring him to be vented from day five. Um, this was day 10 of that hospitalization. And within 12 hours, he was like so much better. Like he was from 100% high flow down to 75 and then within three days, he was off the high flow and only on six liters of oxygen. Outstanding. And after, after he died, I found out he was only on half the dose. So that's, that's a bit, I, I, you know, I say this a lot, but like, forget the numbers. Just look at the patient. The patient asked for shaving stuff. I went and got that. He asked for Chipotle. He was sitting up. He texted my daughter, I'm healed. He told me, crying, you've, you've saved me. 
And then um, he always had shortness of breath in the early mornings, like three to seven in the morning. And you just notch it up, talk him down. But this time they were at lunch. No one was there. And so then he had to start screaming for people. And by that time, it was like all hands on deck. And um, he said, if they wouldn't have come, I would have died. So then from that day, they put him in ICU. And they said, no more ivermectin. And then he died 10 days later. So we asked for ivermectin every single day, you know, from that point on. But they were hard. They were vent. And and when he went in the ICU, he was only on 30% high flow. And they were like, you have to be vented today. And uh, it was just a hard. And then that, that next morning, I tell this a lot, but... I was with him and he was freaked out. That whole experience had his anxiety at a heightened level. And he says to a nurse as she walks in, she said, um, you know, does that happen? Like you're doing good. And then you kind of go back and she goes, let me, and she says it like this. Let me just tell you, there was a 32 year old fit guy that came in here the other day on two liters of oxygen. And at the end of the night, he was in a body bag. And Tony and I, what, and he's like a funny guy. So he was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, helpful or something. And she laughed and left the building. Like, this was the culture. The culture was sick, yeah. dying. You're not going to make it. Let's move on. Let's get the money. Let's be done. I mean, that's how I felt. You know, well, that's, I, the, that's the truth of the matter. People do not realize what, you know, the reason we are telling our stories uh, is is that they are we're trying to get people to see that this is the norm you know each of our stories is unique but as uh, curtis bear, bear says they're not uncommon this is this is you know so what you're hearing is the doctors are telling you this is our standard of care i don't care what you say and you just do it and you have to, you know, think about the box they put you in, saying, "Well, it's a, it's on a lottery system." So you feel thankful to even be there. Well, that's your right to be there. You know, that's yeah. it's it's just crazy. What? Uh, but go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, Tony, and I, I, the whole advocate part, I want to get back to that. But in the in the hospital, he called ACA, Agency for Healthcare Administration. They never returned his call. He emailed the news media. And he emailed the governor and in the governor email, he said, it was, you know, I need antibodies. They're not listening to me or my wife. And I've seen too many body bags pass my room for comfort was the exact quote. One day he said, Patty, I've seen five today. I can't please tell them to close my blinds. I mean, what he, what he was researching on his phone and what he told me and what I saw, it was just death everywhere. Yeah. It was very, like, I felt like this was not COVID or even pneumonia or anything. I think this was just torture. It was mental torture. You know, um, one lady, she's like, does he have anxiety? And I thought, well, who doesn't try to breathe, you know, for weeks? And I said, well, yeah. And she goes, oh, and I thought, oh, dear, she's given up on him. You know, everybody gave up on him. And one of the big things I like to share, too, is when he was vented, he decided to vent. 
And I kept telling him, I don't think it's the right thing. I will back you up, whatever you need to do, but I don't think it's the right thing. And I still think we can get some more meds. And he was about 66. I know patients that have lived through 66 of oxygen. It's not good. But I mean, I thought even at the time that was not survivable. But these are some of the lies, the fear tactics, the bullying that they do in the hospitals. And I did try to get him out. You were asking that earlier, Scott. Yes. Uh, but they said, oh, he won't make it down the hallway. So again, lie. Yeah, they lie. Yeah. So. Even the oxygen levels. I mean, we found out because we were in the room with Grace and we were testing her oxygen ourselves. We found out that they, they lie about the oxygen on top of it. So, I mean, unless you're measuring it with your own meter, you can't trust them because they have a vested interest in underreporting the oxygen numbers because it facilitates the the cash flow. Right. Uh, and wow. and honestly, the last thing I want to share is at the end, uh, it was hard to get ice. It was hard to get water. He wasn't fed the last five days. He was getting really agitated about that. <laughs> and the, the propofol fentanyl levels, he wasn't ever getting out of there. So, so I have to stand. Oh. No one responded to Tony, so I have to respond. So, well, uh, that's uh, uh, you're doing, and you're doing a fun, fantastic job doing it. I'm glad that you're part of this this movement, also. Uh, Don, can you bring all three ladies then in at the same time? We're gonna do a, a round robin with some of these questions that I have. All right. Well, each of you did a fantastic job. Uh, so. Um, I'll go through it, you know, I'll ask each of you the same question, but then, you know, if you want to comment on each other's feel free, as long as like Don said, we can't all talk at the same time. So mm -hmm. what I want to, you know, we're going to spin this to the positive. I mean, everybody needed to hear the stories, but I want to spin this to the positive because I see it as our responsibility with the, the calling of Esther 414 to do something. And so each of you have done something very unique. So Sheila, you already introduced that you're, you wrote a book, but I mean, my gosh, that's it, just a huge undertaking. You know, you and I talked while you were writing the book many months ago and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, people have approached me to write a book and I just, I don't have time. I'm so busy. I, how would I ever have time to write a book? So tell us, tell us more about that, please. Well, it was the most difficult thing I had to do because I had to relive through all the details. And every day we would find a new uh, detail that was crazy and also heartbreaking. But um, I wanted to give you a quote that Rob often said, and I, I, it comforts me and gives me strength. But he says, um, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Wow. So just yeah, because I don't have what it takes or feel like I don't have what it takes he can equip me. So I wanted to share that with you ladies too, because we can feel very outside our comfort zone. My husband was a professional speaker, researcher. Uh, he, we published eight books together, but sometimes it can be intimidating. I spoke at a conference in Georgia for the first time and got a standing ovation and they were so generous and kind and patient. And uh, so, you know what God, he does, he's going to equip us because we've been chosen for this time to do what we're doing. So um, the first thing I wanted to say is uh, about my son, you know, cause at, at the beginning I didn't really want to get out of bed. It was devastating. I just, 
I was not really giving up on life, but I didn't have any energy in me to do anything. So my son came to me and said, Mom, I want to write a book about Rob. Um, Rob ad adopted my son when he was 13. And um, uh, I'll show you the book that he wrote. It's a real short book. It's called I Never Got to Say Goodbye. This is my son and then this is Rob. And really, this book was like therapy to me because it, it showed me the good times that we had. And you can see, I mean, tons of pictures. And then you can see, and it's a story about a father and a son. It's about a father and a son. And, a, and um, Rob asked me when he proposed uh, if he could adopt Jeremiah. And I didn't even expect him to do that because I knew he didn't want to have any extra children. But I didn't expect him to adopt the, the child that I had been raising on my own. And so that was a real precious gift. And so Jeremiah wanted to do this book. And so um, in helping him do it, it made me get the pictures that were all the good times. And that really did help me to go through it. And so then um, he also decided to, um, my husband's tagline was, he was on a quest for truth and he took truth wherever it took him. So he did multiple um, radio shows throughout the week, usually two to a week. And we traveled um, between four and six conferences a year. And I mean, we had some really exciting times. We, we've been to South Africa, Amsterdam, Canada. I mean, we always traveled together. We had a journey that was a gift to me. I mean, I had so much fun. Uh, he was a very joyful person, always in a good mood, woke up in a good mood. He was a Boy Scout. He was a rule follower. He, I often got on his nerves because I don't always stop at stop signs if it's a dead end. And he would say, you're only good at what you practice. So I'm actually doing that now. But um, <laughs> he, he was a good example. I like he was that a good, one. He was a good example to all of us, including myself. And so um, in saying that, Jeremiah, after he did the book, he wanted to create a platform where he could continue the legacy of being on a quest for truth. And even though he admits he, he doesn't have the knowledge that Rob has, he doesn't know the scripture quite like Rob did. I mean, Rob knew it like he had memorized it. But still, the heart of Jeremiah was to continue his father's legacy to be on a quest for truth. So every Friday on YouTube at 444, they do a Skiba News Nation. I don't really have much to do with it. I've been on it a few times. And they just pursue truth. And, uh, and you know, it honors me to know, I mean, he's, way outside his comfort zone as well but he's taken that upon himself to keep his father's voice alive so there's that well, so um then going back to the book um the first thing i they never told me how he died it, it's very odd and i won't go into the details um it 40 days was how long he was in there and when he died i asked uh, the nurse the same nurse i had asked at the beginning of this to get into my chart told me I don't get my chart until he was discharged, which I knew was a lie because I take care of elderly and it's in real time. So Rob was strong enough to give me the code. And then he's got so many projects and emails. He talked to me, he, he talked to me step-by-step step how to get up to his office and log into the right email and then put the code and all that. So I did get into my chart. It was a little bit of, there was a little bit of a lag, which kind of didn't really help me. But anyway, to say all that, the, the nurse at the end of his life, when they were calling me from the elevator, uh, Sheila, Sheila, and then finally going into his room, I was seeing all these doctors lined up along the side of the walls, several of them inside of the room, and they were literally faking CPR on him. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. They told him, they told me that he needed, 
dialysis. So they put a, a, a catheter in. I mean, this, this is beyond comprehension. That's why I wrote the book too, because if I told you what they did, you probably wouldn't believe me. And that's why I'm so thankful that I was able to get all the conversations because I'm hoping these doctors can read it and really see exactly. It is premeditated murder is what it is. So well, then I got the, I wanted to get the whole complete record. I wanted to understand what did they do? How did they do it? I never thought he was going to die ever. He was 52 years old. He was, he uh, would work out twice a week. He ate, he was the healthiest person that I've ever known. So I got the 5,000 pages and I started looking through it and I asked my friend, Roberta, will you help me? And she said, yes. So we spent several months looking through the details, writing down our, and we made a summary made a, a, a 40 day summary and we were hoping to get an attorney to look at it. But very quickly we found that with the prep act and the cares act, uh, nobody's going to touch a malpractice suit. So we decided let's do what Rob did. Rob wrote books and really my friend Roberta had a brilliant idea and it was let's let the reader be the jury. Public opinion is going to go a lot further than a court case. Not, not right your your case is excellent and I'm praying for you and I'm, I'm really praying for you, but for just a malpractice case, it's impossible. And even if it did get through, it will just be brushed under the rug. Since my husband had a platform, we decided to write this book the way we did so that all of the audience could be the jury. And then at that point we can do something about it because this is what the father showed me. It says in the, in the last days that we're to occupy until he comes. Well, that word occupy is a military term. It means, you know, and so he showed me we are supposed to uh, take authority and they should be afraid of us. We should not be afraid of them. So I, I, I know the book that this these uh, um, details in the medical record are like it's like a forensic file. There are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of details. I could I could never have written this book by myself. It's not a sob story. It is a literal case study. And it's the largest expose ever written on a government incentivized protocol that kills. And Roberta and Alan Stalby put their lives on hold. Beautiful, godly couple. And uh, we worked together 12 hour days. I mean, it took a, it took a year and a half. So, um, and I'll show you, I mean, you can see how big it is. It's, 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 isn't it for, it's 444 pages, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, what, what's interesting is, you know, Rob created a prayer initiative a month before he died, encouraging people to pray at 444 in the morning or 444 at night to be unified with people in prayer. Cause he really thought that we could turn the ship around, but, uh, we had, we do it. We, uh, Alan had it in word and, and when he converted it into a PDF, it was 444 pages and that was just a kiss from the father. Um, now, now this <laughs> book is 438 pages, but still you can see that it's pretty robust. I mean, it has charts, laws, I mean, all kinds of stuff, actual medical records. And so, um, so, so with my son's book, the show Skiba news nation every Friday at 444. And then my book, um, has taken me, uh, to do seven interviews so far and um and one conference outstanding uh, we, we drove to georgia um yeah that was oh, that was way outside my comfort zone but uh, i'm so glad i went and i enjoyed it you know this business of occupying i had pastor haiti in on two weeks ago and he jumped into that discussion and it's right I and mean, we're all four of us are recapturing lost ground so yes, we, we we gave up ground to Satan by trusting the white coats. 
now we realize that is that was wrong we trusted in men and that was the that was the mistake we all made and now we've got to reclaim that ground and occupy we can't stop you know in spite of, we talked right before the the show about the the talking heads are converging on this idea of amnesty we can never let that happen we mm -hmm. got to keep talking mm -hmm. so um rebecca talk about what you're doing now because this this is really a unique twist what rebecca is doing well just like sheila said this is out of my comfort zone because I was never a public person, you know, my work is interior design in New York, it's very private, private clients, and what did it to my daughter have pushed me to be uncomfortable and to speak about it? So I was frustrated with the justice system because no attorney wanted to take my case, even though I had my daughter autopsy report, which showed that it blew her lungs out two weeks before she died. I, I took action by creating a website called Death by Hospital Protocol because this is premeditated murder. And I was drawing inspiration from Simon Wiesenthal Life. I don't know if anyone of you know Simon Wiesenthal. Explain. I saw the, pardon? Yeah, go, ahead and, go ahead and explain who he is. Yeah, I saw the power of one person dedicated efforts to bring justice to those responsible for heinous crimes. Simon, a survivor of the Nazi death camp, spent his life documenting the Holocaust atrocities and hunting down the perpetrators. His efforts had led to over 1,100 arrests of Nazi war criminals, and he brought justice to the victims. In today's world, I feel like the SS is lurking in every organization. The hospital and doctors now are an extension of the Nazi party who is following the orders of the SS. And history is repeating itself. I hope that by following Simon Lead, I can commit, I can help expose these crimes and commit myself to fighting and bringing accountability to all of us who lost loved ones. And that's why I follow him. And this is not about vengeance. This is about justice. And my fight is for justice and not vengeance. Because vengeance is mine, see at the Lord. And I can't, I can't, I could never do what God could do even though my mind wanted to go there several times. And I told you, Scott, this is not about vengeance. This is, you know, about justice and God will deal with them. But I have to do my part in exposing. And Simon Wiesenthal has been a very big inspiration to me in this fight because history is repeating itself. So the website that you created, what what is the uh, name of the website? And then tell what's actually going on with that we my daughter jessica put grace's story on but i want you to explain it so people understand what what's happening with that website it's a pretty neat idea yeah well well i i discussed with you months ago when i first my idea came to me what am i going to do now now that they did this so the website is called death by hospital protocol.com and i'll just read you what i wanted to what it has to be um i had to write notes because i'm very nervous and what I want is for evil to flourish, it only requires good men to do nothing. And a quote by Simon Wiesenthal. By giving you a review of what has happened to your loved one experience in a hospital and the deadly cocktail of drugs which resulted in their death, including vaccine injured who died, let us unmask them by sharing their names and faces. When this information is out in public, people can make informed choices for their own health. Let us not let the offenders slip away. 
by compiling a comprehensive effort, a comprehensive list of perpetrators in every state, holding them accountable and creating an accessible nationwide database. This will prevent them from moving from state to state or even out of the country. And it may even prove critical in the event of a Nuremberg II trial. So I would like to get the names of these doctors, the pictures of these doctors, which are being scrubbed from the internet um, onto this platform. And I want people to check this website out before they ever go and see a doctor or go to a hospital again. I'm hoping that I could have that so that this would be an American, a service to all Americans. I, I think it's absolutely fantastic, you know, to, to have pictures of murderers that you mm -hmm. can check out ahead of time. I mean, it is, I think that idea knocks it out of the park. I really, I really like it. So can, can I share? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Sheila. Just just to go with the, what, what she said, it's very ironic that Rob's last presentation that he created for Take on the World 2021 before he got sick was called Revelation 12 and the Nuremberg Connection. That's wow. what he that's the presentation that he had put together. Now, I found out later, actually, a couple days ago that because when he when I picked him up from the airport, I said, did you give your talk? And he said, no, it was hijacked. I didn't know what that meant. I just kind of blew it off. But um I learned last weekend that there was a woman manifesting a demon and my husband felt it more important to minister to her instead of giving his talk. And so my son and I went ahead and took his slides and did the best we could after his death to share that. But yeah, he, that's where he was. He was exposing all of this. So I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. He had that insight. Uh, yeah. He, he had a gift. Rob really had a gift. I dug into some of Rob's materials and, uh, yeah, he he definitely was a special guy. He had a gift. Thank you. So Pat, you know, I want to um, go to you know, Patty. I I left you last on purpose because you know what you're doing with your your series. So I mean, tell first you start you you had the first film uh, how long ago, and then now the second one was just released. I think two to three weeks ago, and you have you have a docu series planned, correct? Right. All right. So go go ahead. One, yeah. So making a killing documentary uh it first came out november last year and then uh the second episode uh just aired a few weeks ago like i said so um we are going to cover all kinds of protocols um i i, I still have a lot more to say with this but uh we may move to cancer we hospice special needs is huge for me so I just think there's all kinds of protocols happening and I didn't want it to be just solely focused on COVID because um, I just think there's a lot more to say about healthcare right now or health sick care, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think it just, I think once, once I re recalled that my husband was trying to stand up and no one responded, that's when I was like, oh no. I, and again, I I have no expectations on this. My my only hope is that people will wake up more. People will, I, I've, I feel like I've hopefully saved people in different ways by the advice that I've been given. I'm learning more each day what works and what um, what can help people or natural things, you know. Um, and in fact, uh, just two months after Tony died, um, 
his brother was uh, diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And they told him, you have two years to live. It's probably about, you know, a couple months from now and chemo forever. And I watched this episode happen and it was just like Tony. It's ever was cancer, but it was the same. I was like, the treatment's killing this guy. And so through the documentary, I've had nurses and she's one of the nurses on my film too. Uh, she reached out to him as helping him and there's not a cancer cell around. He's not on chemo. And that has to be told, you know, so. Absolutely right on. I mean, that's, we cannot frame any of our cases that they are from COVID. This has nothing to do with COVID. Otherwise, we're going to be put in this box and then they're going to, it's in this amnesty box and then we move on. But this is all COVID did for all of us is expose the agenda. And now it's our life. You know, I talked with um, Nurse Erin a couple of weeks ago and she said, I don't remember what my life was like. And I'm sure all of you feel that same way. I don't remember anymore. What was I doing? What was life like? Because this is this is our lives now. Uh, you know, and it, it has to be. Otherwise, people are going to think, well, this was just this anomaly. And it isn't an anomaly. I mean, cancer is a is a huge piece of, of this mm -hmm. that they have programmed us. They have done such a good job of programming us that I, I uh, it's hard to stomach. I, I want to switch gears to best piece of advice you could give somebody if you had one piece of advice to give. What would it be based on what you've learned? So we'll start with you, Sheila. Well, I have two, if I can. One is supplemental oxygen. I mean, are you giving two even if I say no? Please, please. Okay. I'll All be right, quick. Well, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. One is supplemental oxygen. <laughs> that's what Grace. That's what Grace. Was. And then, and then the second thing is, uh, and I, I would have put it in the book, but I learned about it after I had already published. Even though I could, I self-published, so I can add it. But it's um, there are documents that uh, two ladies have put together that can literally save your life, but you need to do it before you get into the hospital. And I, I, I just, I just love these uh, people's, these women's hearts because they truly want to see lives saved. And if we don't do this, and God forbid, we end up in the hospital for a a car accident or something. I mean, good luck because they're going to be doing everything to you. So um, ironically, my book is the protocol that kills.com. And when I uh, went to find that domain, I found protocolkills.com. And that website is amazing. They have resources where you can print them out, get them notarized, give them to people that know what you know, because it's not going to be easy, but you got to go in there on the offense, not the defense. They need to be afraid of you when you, you know, God forbid, have to go to the hospital. So those are my two things I would say. Well Sorry. done, Sheila. Okay. And on Grace's website also, ouramazinggrace.net, we have a hospital rescues tab and the links to protocol kills and the documents are there also. And my right. two, all my resources, yeah. Rebecca, you're not gonna do two now also, no. are you? <laughs> no. All right, go ahead. I, I believe knowledge is power. We need to be informed. We need to get an integrative doctor. We need to know exactly the good doctors from the bad doctors. We need to do all our blood tests. Make sure that our health is, you know, in check. Make sure we have high vitamin level of Ds, you know. Do the things you need to do before you get sick. Like, we were never sickly. My daughter was never sickly. We were never. This was like a surprise. It just just thrown at us because if she mm -hmm. ever got the cold, it was four or five days, and that's right. it. You know, so we need to, to keep our health in check. 
before we get sick. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, that's not the American way, by the way. I mean, when when do you stop smoking? It's when you you get lung cancer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we wait for the last minute. That's just our way, but we can't do that anymore. All right, Patty, what do you think? What's the thing? My best advice, yes. get ready for it. Ready? Yes. Not go to the hospital. That is the best advice ever. Um, you know, if your doctor doesn't want to listen to what you want for your body, get another person. That's the biggest advice I could say. I could go on, but. Yeah. Oh, well, that, that's right. I mean, we have the right to fire our doctor, you know, in the in the unfortunate situation where you objectively need to go to the hospital, which there can be. I mean, the advocacy, the documents that Sheila suggested are are super important, mm -hmm. but there's never been a document that ever saved your life. The hospital is not the place to be nice. And mm -hmm. that applies to you, but also the advocate that you may need if you can't advocate for yourself. All right, the last question before I start closing is, how can people specifically help you with each one of your missions? And so I'm gonna start with Sheila, but Don, will you bring the screenshot up of her website while she talks about how people can help? Where I see Sheila's book is that, you know, God says in Hosea 4, 6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. This book is, is the best out there for knowledge. So Don, if you can bring up her screenshot and then Yeah, this Sheila, is Rob is a thing. Yeah, this is the face of of, of 1.2 million people. So I, I encourage you to go to the website, send my website to your family and friends. Uh, there's a three-minute promo that you saw earlier. Um, that could be a good way to introduce them to it. There's also all the interviews that I've done are also on the website. Um, if we don't unify, we are going to end up dying alone. So I would like, uh, if you would like to join our future calls to action, I encourage you to go to the website and leave your name and contact information so that you can be uh, made known, made, made aware of when we do start uh, more, you know, fine-tuned uh, calls of action. I'm also looking for bold attorneys that aren't afraid because I would like to seek justice. Um, if there's any way that you can share my book with uh, influential people, if you have connections or contacts, um, everyone that's listening to this show, if you could post the website URL on your social media and, and just help it get out there. Mm -hmm. um, we need to get this evidence into the hands of those who, who still trust the medical system so they can not be a statistic like my husband became. He knew. I mean, we didn't we never we don't we never believed in the medical system. We knew it was set up to make money from the start. We the only you know, the only thing that, you know, we would ever go there for was a, a, you know, appendicitis or a car accident or something like that. But for people who think that they are helping people, if they read this book, they will be looking evil right in the eye. Yeah, that's uh, that's spot on. Well done, Sheila. Thank you. All right, Rebecca. Don, can you bring up Rebecca's? There, there you go. You got it. All right. So, Rebecca, I want to know how people can help you specifically. And as I see what you're doing, you are... Uh, literally exposing, shining light on evil, and it's fantastic. So go ahead. Thank you. Isaiah 520 says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. So I believe that people need now to come together and shine a light on every, every doctor they had, every hospital situation they had. The public needs to be aware that if they're not educated about what's going on, that they will die. Like 
like so many of us now, we have stories to tell. For financial gain, most medical professionals strictly follow the hospital protocol and they adhere to the CDC vaccine guidelines, even though it, they know it's going to cause death. So Americans need to make informed decision about their health care. Please be informed. Please put your review there. Please try to get a picture of the doctor. We need to collect. We need to have a database where people could just go and click on the state and say, oh, my God, this doctor, he's not there. Let me still check him out because the hospitals are not allowing you to keep reviews on. They removed my husband's website. They removed our review. They removed reviews from other people who posted on the hospital website. So this is going to be a collection of reviews, images, hospitals, to know who's safe and who's not. So I just ask everybody to please write your review. Please put, don't, do not, do not shame the person on there. Do not shame them. All you have to do is to put a picture before and under this care, this is what happened to my loved one. And people, is now, they're knowledge enough to just look at that picture and say, I don't want to go to that doctor. If this is what happened to this patient, I do not want to go to that doctor. That's right on. I mean, simply telling the truth. We're not trying yes. to shame somebody. That's yes. fantastic. Close, Rebecca. Thank you. All right. Patty, I, you know, Patty's been in this fight for longer than any of us, and she sees the broad view. And as I said earlier, she's the impetus for the program today. And so, Don, you've got her screenshot up. Patty, tell the viewers how they can specifically help you. Yeah, so the truth will set us free. And God's word is what I'm relying on and the hope that I have in him and not any of these crazy people. I like to say that. So you're going to go to makingakillingdoc.com. And all of our films so far, film one and two, is up there for free for anybody to see. And we have some resources. So each film that we do, we're telling stories, but we're also giving information that will help people. Um, and we just really... Uh, I just feel like we just have more stories to tell and we'll keep telling them till we don't. So yeah, to share and give people information so they can be not killed. Thank you very much, Patty. So I'm going to wrap up with a few words in closing. Then Don's going to um, bring up one quick slide that I have and then move to uh, attorney Warner Mendenhall's comment and then play a montage of a number of people who of family members who have lost their lives. So, you know, when I look at this, I see we have um, an obedience to a call and there's a number of obedient soldiers in this field and in this war specifically, all of our loved ones are casualties of war. And I see that we are in the days of Noah and hence the sense of urgency. There's an urgency like never before. And it's not just sharing these stories, but it's sharing the gospel. You know, Jesus, Jesus walked this earth. Uh, he died, was buried and rose again on the third day so that whoever believes in him can be reconciled with the father. And it is critical that we make sure that we frame everything we're doing as part of God's calling. And, you know, for me personally, I see how lazy of a Christian I was before this happened. I mean, I was involved with the world, the slippery slope of believing lies, fear, greed, emotion, selfishness, the whole law of entropy had really taken over my Christian life. And now I see us as responsible to occupy. Let's get that ground back and let's mm -hmm. not 
let's not let it go again. Uh, so Don, I would like you to bring up the last slide that I have of my little stinker. So we we have this poster because uh, you know Grace was special, and you know we're standing behind Genesis fifty twenty, and I want to read Genesis fifty twenty because Grace did not die in vain. Genesis fifty twenty says, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good." to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So ladies, thanks for coming on today. If you stand after the slideshow that Don plays, we'll all say goodbye. But Don's gonna just take it right to the end of the show. He's gonna first play the clip from Warner Mendenhall, which is about a minute. And Warner's calling a spade a spade. He's one of the few attorneys doing that. And then he'll do the PowerPoint slideshow at the end. So thanks There for are situations that we have seen that I believe deserve prosecution for murder. And, and we will be working, uh, we, these are obviously fairly extreme and we have to have very good evidence before a prosecutor will step up. But there are cases where we now believe there are healthcare personnel who murdered their patients. And, and when we know of those situations, we are trying to get the medical records, get the evidence accumulated, get the recordings. Sometimes the families have taken recordings that show that this is murder. So we do have some criminal uh, aspects to this. And I think just convicting or even bringing charges against some doctors and even hospital systems for murder uh, will shift the chemistry of this and, and put the fear of God uh, back in uh, to the white coats who have led us astray in this process.
by for further details, we return you now to your regularly scheduled program.